Hi there. This is City Book and Company, a chatty little podcast that dishes and dotes on the upstarts, icons, dreamers, and doers of Houston, the most fascinating city in America. I'm Jeff Grimion, the editor of Houston City Book Magazine and HoustonCityBook.com, and I'm your host. Our guest today will be Becca Cason Thrash, one of the world, certainly Houston's probably the world's foremost philanthropists and most glamorous fashionistas and hostesses. Becca Cason Thrash is a former fashion editor who's become a legendary fashionista in her own right, channeling her unique sense of glitz and glamour into, wait for it, $100 million in money raised for nonprofits and charities as diverse as the Elton John AIDS Foundation, the Manel Collection, the Houston Holocaust Museum, and the Baylor College of Medicine. Her work on the Louvre in Paris, $15 million and counting, got her knighted by the French. Around here, though, as I say, we just think of her as a gal who throws a really good party. Can't wait to talk with her. But first, I'm thrilled to be joined by my guest co-host today. We're going to have a guest co-host uh, in all of these podcasts moving forward. The very first one, I'm honored to say, is my great friend, Lisa Holthouse, who's also the executive publisher of City Book. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me along today. Did you ever think you'd be hosting a podcast? Absolutely in not. Your, in your dining room. <laughs> I think people should know we're in your dining room in your beautiful memorial home. Well, thank you. I love hosting you here and have enjoyed every meeting we've ever had here with, with City Book. No, I never dreamed we would be doing this, but I couldn't be more thrilled about it. And I couldn't be more excited to be hosting it with you having my old friend Becca as our first guest. It's going to be fun. Yeah. My earliest memory of you was uh, at probably one party or another with your husband, Michael. And I had no idea that you guys were like the top tier philanthropist and so well known and so well loved. Your husband, Michael, is a you know hugely successful businessman. You guys are really, really up there in, this, in, the, in the stratosphere. I just thought you were cool people that, that loved to party. I re- honestly, it was years later before I was like, wait a second, these people are really somebody. Oh, that's sweet to that's say. That's my early memory of you. At a certain point, we became business partners. Tell people about that and why you wanted to join me in this journey with CityBook. Well, it's funny that you put me up in some weird stratosphere. I, I completely put you up there as someone that I you know, really looked up to and admired. I'm a complete magazine fanatic. And I'm one of those readers who read your letter all the time when you were working with Houston Magazine, Houston Modern Luxury. And so I used to look forward to your letters, and I didn't even know who you were, but admired them, admired you, admired your work. And so when you came to me as someone who might be interested in investing in your cool startup project, it was a yes at hello. Lucky for me. (laughs) So from the very beginning, you love magazines. You always have stacks around you. Every time you go on a plane, you buy a bunch of magazines. And you, I, I get the hand-me-downs sometimes when you're, you're done, which is great <laughs> for my, my library. But you've also said from the very beginning you wanted us to do more in digital at CityBook. And we're in the process of expanding our, our digital platform a lot. We're going to be having a lot more content online, a, a much bigger, better, faster website. We're very excited about it, a big investment. We're using the COVID reset time that so many people are taking for different reasons. That's what we're doing at CityBook is making a big investment and expanding our digital footprint. Part of that is this podcast. Are you excited about all of that and where our company's going? I'm so excited. I'm, it's time. We have made our mark in the print world, and I think we have such a wonderful following. And we will, of course, always have that beautiful print book where people want to grab it when they get on an airplane or whatever. 
But I think it's just, it's time for us to, to move more into the digital world. And now that we're settled and, you know, we have a good, a good, wonderful base, I think it's a perfect time for us. Well, I'm excited about all of that. And I'm excited about our friend Becca. You and I have known her personally a long time. We're going to talk about some of the fabulous parties we've been to at her home. Let's talk to Becca. Let's do Becca Case and Thrash, thank you so much for being our very first guest on City Book and Company. Well, I'm honored. It's it's a great pleasure. Now, you have a, a reputation of being a shrinking violet, and it's hard to get a lot out of you. So we're hoping that we can <laughs> I'll work through. do my best not to be demure today. <laughs> question I have for you to begin with is, what a friggin' crazy year it's been for everybody. Yeah. You're a person who thrives on people, on social life being out and about, being glamorous, being seen, seeing others. How in the world have you navigated this bizarre year? Well, full disclosure, I have not hated it because I haven't slowed down in about 25 years. And this has been a forced slowdown. And so I got lots done like everybody else in their house, gave away and cleaned out closets and all of that. And then I started having people over, but like two at a time, very socially distanced. I've got this 20-foot-long dining room table, and you practically needed microphones to hear one another, but tried to do it, you know, cautiously and intelligently and responsibly. And so I have, you know, over the last seven months, we've seen actually a lot of people, but I really miss dressing up and going to parties and you know, I love that, but I'm I'm hoping that it'll be back next year at some point. And do you ever dress up at home when you I invite do. people over? I totally do. Good. I totally do. What are you wearing these days when you're when you're having these intimate parties at home? Well, I'm not shopping, so I'm just going in my closet and reworking the golden oldies, and it's been fun. But mostly jewelry. You know, you sort of want to be deck and be dazzle, and it's more like sitting at a table and from the waist up, <laughs> you've got some. Pizzazz. I want to ask you about a particular, back in the good old days when, when we were having parties, you threw a fundraising party for Barack Obama, which in 2008, which I believe was the, that was the most money ever raised for At a Democratic presidential candidate in Texas. Just under $2 million in one night. Tell me about you that. You understand that the tickets, I think at the time the DNC, the tickets were, I have to go back on memory, but I think they were $38,000 a person. And that's why the raise was so big, because the, the tickets were huge. And what do you remember about that night, A, and B, we're taping this today, a few weeks before the election. Mm -hmm. When it airs, the election will be over. So all our listeners will know what happened. We don't know yet. We can't talk about the outcome, but we can talk about the state of politics today and how we're all mm -hmm. feeling about this tense moment leading right. up to the election. Tell me about the party for Barack Obama and how do you feel well, about it? Well, interesting that, that I had no idea you were going to ask me about that, by the way. But it's funny because literally about a week ago, my husband and I were talking. At the time, we didn't seem so polarized like we are right now. And most of my friends were voting for John McCain. And I was sort of a Republican turned independent and we were asked to do this, and I was thrilled because I saw him as a young senator speak at the DNC convention on television and just fell in love with his charisma and his uh, extraordinary oratory skills. So anyway, about five days before the event, the Secret Service came, 
and they went through the entire house with dogs. And then we learned that there would be, on the night of the event, five snipers. Five snipers were placed around the neighbor next door, across the bayou, on the uh, where the river, uh, the Houston Country Club is. There was a sniper, a sniper on our roof, a sniper on our property. All next in your door. home and, and all memorial. outside. Yes, yeah. exactly. And all of our uh, lines were tapped uh, ten days in advance and ten days after. We got death threats. We got hate mail. And the night that he came, he ate in one of our guest rooms because they don't eat the food that you serve. I mean, it's a real serious thing. And I remember the afternoon before, the head of Secret Service said, where do you want to put him to speak? And I said, well, I thought I'd put him right here. And there's sort of a big window. It's at the end of the the pool, Lisa, the indoor pool. You both know it so well. And he said, well, we'll have to put pipe and drape there. And I went, <clears throat> pipe and drape in my house? I don't think so. And so he said, well, a sniper could just, I mean, uh, anybody could just take him out. I mean, he just said it in such a matter-of-fact way. And then I was reminded that JFK was assassinated right up the road in Dallas, Texas, and they don't take you know, I mean, everything is a precaution. So we moved him to the opposite end. He ate in the guest room, and then he came out and sat and talked and gave his speech and did a Q&A. And I, I was just so astonished at the security for a candidate because he was still a senator. I mean, he had received the nomination. He went straight from our house to the convention in Chicago, I think it was. I mean, we went, and now I can't even remember where it was. But, yeah, it was unbelievable, and I'll never forget it, ever. So they brought his own meal. They brought his own meal. Wow. Uh-huh. And reflecting on that and how politics are today, what do you think is going to happen in the election? you want to make a prediction? Oh, I have absolutely no idea. I, I mean, honestly, I don't listen to polls. I mean, let's all remember that the day of the election... 2016, Hillary Clinton was up six points, and everybody thought it was a shoe-in, and it wasn't. And I just have no idea. I would never, ever, never presume to make any kind of prediction. I just have no idea. Do you know Donald Trump? Weren't you on a board with the Trumps or in some group in England with the Trumps a million years ago? That, that was Blaine. I'm very close friends with Blaine Trump and her husband, Robert, who just recently died this year. But I've never met Donald Trump, ever. Let's back up a minute. Let's do. Let's talk about growing up. I'm dying to hear from your lips growing up in Harlingen and how you ended up, you know, at Spanish Vogue and a little bit about your fun history and other things that I've heard recently that I didn't even know, like your father being a professional football player. Yeah, he was. <laughs> Tell Dad, us about Slim Jim Casey. Yeah. All American, all pro. He was a character. Growing up in Harlingen was like any other, you know, childhood in a small town. My grandparents were alive and lived in the same town, and it was, I I feel so lucky because I grew up with a very loving household. Dad wasn't there that much because he was on the golf course or, you know, he was was a guy's guy. But I knew it from a pretty early age that I wanted a bigger life than what I had. And on my birth certificate, it says my name is Becky Jean Kaysen. Well, I knew I was not going to have this great, big, sophisticated life being Becky Jean. So I saved all my money when I was a senior in high school, and I had the KY changed to CA legally, and I became Becca Kaysen. And so that was my first step into this new reinvention that I wanted. You know, I love fashion, and I love jewelry, and I loved parties, and 
I read about, you know, the Rochilles, Alento Rochilles, and all these people that I just aspired to have a life similar to theirs. And so I I left, and instead of going to college, I went to the Fashion Institute of Technology because I thought I was going to be a fabulous fashion designer, only to learn pretty quickly I had absolutely no talent whatsoever, (laughs) and I was devastated by that. So, But while I was in school, I met Robert Caillet, who was, there was a London division, and so one summer I did the London division, and I met Robert Caillet, and he was telling me that they were going to do a Vogue in Espanol, and they were going to do it in Buenos Aires. And so in the end, they decided not to do it in Buenos Aires. It was too far away from everything, you know? And speaking Spanish, I... um, he asked me if I, I said, I, I'm not a writer. I don't have any experience as a writer. He said, maybe you're not a writer, but you're a talker. And I met him two or three times, and he loved the way I styled myself. And I'm talking about, guys, this is the 70s, the early 70s. So I was really, it was that sort of Haight-Ashbury, Biba, Gene Shrimpton, Twiggy, Verushka, and so the, Marisa Berenson, so all of these women that I looked up to that I wanted to emulate their style, because in Harlingen, nobody had any style. I mean, everybody wore polyester, you know, because it was, or, or their golf How fleets. big is Harlingen? Uh, I think six people. If you know. <laughs> um, I think that when I graduated from high school, there was 48,000 people, and I think today it's probably the same. And it's not even really South Texas anymore. It's more like northern Mexico. I think it's 98.6, my mother was telling me, percent Mexican-Americans that live there. So you really hear Spanish more than you hear English. And it's. But when I was growing up, it was really a southern Texas town, you know. Is your mom still there? My mom's still there. She turns 89 on the 28th of this month. And she's still, you know, ornery and ready to go. <laughs> So I noticed my electricity bill was getting out of hand. It was time to do that thing all we Houstonians have to do from time to time. You know what I mean. You have to go through the hassle of switching to a new provider to get a better deal. And then over time, the prices creep up on you again after the contract period ends. And then you have to do the whole thing over again, all over again, sometime later. It's maddening. Thank goodness a friend told me about Real Simple Energy. This is a new company, Houston-based, started by two friendly local young professionals, Trent and Paul. They're both around 40. And what they do is find you the cheapest deals, the cheapest deals for you. They present you three options, one of which will always be green if that's important to you. You pick, and they handle the busy work of getting you switched over. You will save a ton of cash. Most folks save around 500 bucks a year. I actually think I'm going to save a little bit more than that. And the best part, when your contract ends and your prices start sneaking up on you, They get more cheap options in front of you again and do the whole process again and take care of you getting switched over the whole nine yards. Nobody else does what they do. You will never pay for electricity again. Never hassle with providers. Only deal with real simple. Set it and forget it. Never worry about this stuff again and have peace of mind. Don't let the big providers take advantage of you anymore. Sign up and start saving today at realsimpleenergy.com. And if you use promo code CITYBOOK, you'll get an additional 50 bucks off your first bill. So now you're in Mexico City, a young fashion editor. When did Houston happen and why? Well, it happened right after that because 
I used to sit in my office, and un- please understand, I'm not comparing myself to Diana Vreeland or Anna Wintour. I mean, if you wanted olive green pantyhose, you got white ones from the nurse's supply and got in the bathtub with Ritz dye and got <laughs> yellow and green and brown until you came up with the color, you know? So it was very glamorous, far from glamorous, far from glamorous. But I used to sit in my office and the PR people would come in from Dior or Saint Laurent or Chanel and pitch their pieces to be featured editorially. And I remember I used to sit in there thinking they are so bad at their job. I, I <laughs> could do their job so much better. And I didn't really know what PR was or what public relations was. And so when I left Vogue, because one day I just said, ya renuncio, yo no puedo trabajar aquí en este país, ni una me I was just like, I can't, I can't do it. You know, I'd call a meeting at nine o'clock in the morning and they would arrive at 1130. No le hace que tenemos mucho tiempo. No, we don't have a lot of time. And one time we actually missed a whole month. We went from June to August and the whole month of July was missed. We were so, the whole issue was so late and we gave the advertisers one more month. I mean, we're talking about the third world back then. I mean, it was, it's a very sophisticated place today and I love it. But when I lived there, it was far from sophisticated. And so I left and I went back to Houston and created a little public relations company and started, you know, taking on clients like Tootsie's and Boccaccio back then, Mike Steinman, all of his places. And then my business got too big for me, and Holly Moore was at Ultra Magazine. There was sort of a lifestyle. They, I think they sort of patterned it after. They aped town and country, but on a local level. It was beautiful. It was beautiful, and Holly was the fashion editor of that. So we both had fashion backgrounds, and then ultimately – we became friends and stayed friends, and we both had nothing to do. We formed Case and Amore Public Relations and Special Events, and she was so much stronger in the writing, and I was so much stronger in the talking. And then we began getting hired to do all these special events, and that was, boy, that I really found my niche then. I, I knew that that's what I, I wanted to do was you know, create these lavish parties and I'm still doing it to this day, you know, but I don't get paid anymore and haven't for 25 years. (laughs) But somewhere in the middle of all that, you created, as you say, Paper City. How how did that idea come about? What did the name come from? The idea came out of desperation. I mean, really, (laughs) let's, let's not, you know, beat around the bush. We had the Houston Chronicle and the Houston Post, and there was a magazine back in the 80s called Houston Metropolitan. And literally, it seemed like overnight, Houston Metropolitan closed, Houston Post closed. We've got a huge stable of clients, like 25 clients, and only one newspaper and a very limited place to place them. And so both of us had fashion backgrounds, and Holly, Holly more than me, was like, why reinvent the wheel? And one day, you know, we're sitting in La Madeleine and down on the floor is a W and it was not bound back then. The original W's were not bound. Mm -hmm. And we just like, let's not try to reinvent the wheel. We'll just ape it. And so off we went with that. And it was really more, it was Holly and I and a graphic artist and Holly would, you know, really style it more than me. I was out there getting the people to, you know, and, and the way we did it in the beginning is if, if there was a cover and it was shot at the Houstonian and the model had on something from Tootsie's and the men's model had on something from Lucho 
And then there was Louis Tannenbaum jewelry because he was alive back then. Well, they all paid for that. So it looked like editorial, but it was paid for. So it was really what I learned in Mexico City. They had something down there called advertorial. Mm -hmm. So things were presented like, you know, beautiful trips to the Bahamas, but every page is paid for. But it's presented like editorial. So that's how it began. We didn't have ads for over a year. It was all paid advertorial. Wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And now it's all about ads. And and, and, we'll- and, and and it's all about Holly. I mean, I stepped away and sold my 50% in 1996. So and was that I, right about when you were marrying John? Right when I married John. John didn't really, he didn't want me to work. Why is that? I mean, he was happy for me if I wanted to. But, you know, I tried so hard, Lisa, to be a lady that lunched, but it's just not, I have just, I'm a girl from the working class. I didn't know what else to do. So I, I began being invited to be all, on all these boards, you know, the Contemporary Arts Museum called and the ballet called and the opera called and you called for after school all-stars <laughs> right. and it's not on my resume because I just thought of it right now when I was pulling into your driveway and I remember Oliver Luck and I were trying to get in Sitting one day at this for table. a board meeting, this very table. Right. So I'm sorry that's not on my bio, but you can remember it all. There's just so much, you know, in 25 years, covered a lot of territory. So I went on all these boards. And if they would say, can you give 250000 Well, there was a time when we could. But later, they would say, could you give 250000 if it was to uh, something at uh, the ballet or whatever, I'd say, no, but I can raise it for you. So I started creating these. And then I had the house and, you know, the venue to do it. And I, as John said, you know, he never dreamt that this house was going to, you know, become, you know, a public service, <laughs> you know, venue. But, you know, over the years between all of those boards and all of the other organizations that reached out, it just, it was just an endless stream of fundraising for me, and I like doing it. And so I'm a philanthropist more for what I've raised than what I've given, although over the years we've given quite a lot. If you look at the list, it's oh, yeah. crazy. You're at like $100 million or something. Yeah, I've raised about $100 million. That's terrific. There's a very special way in which you've gone about that. You gave me a quote once. I interviewed you a long time ago for an, another magazine, and I've written about you a number of times since then, and I, I always throw that quote in because it, it's so fabulous. You said to me when you were evaluating the kinds of things you would get involved in, you said, if it's not sexy, fashionable, and fun, I'm not doing it. That might sound superficial, but I've made peace with it. Right. That's, is that, still your, you is that still your ethos? You know what? I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I have made peace with it. I'm giving my time, my resources. I'm pulling in my favors. I'm getting the auction items. You know, I'm calling the art galleries. I'm calling the people to, you know, first I get a piece donated, then I got to find the person to sell it. And I'm selling the tickets and I'm spending my own money flying back and forth to Venice, to Paris, to Mexico City, to New York, to Palm Beach, Houston, Texas, wherever I'm doing these things. So if I'm going to do all that, it's going to be my way and I'm going to do what I want to do. And, it better and be if darn you're not fun. happy with it, then I'm not your girl, you know, and I'm, and I step away and I have stepped, I have, you know, many times just said, I, I don't think it's going to work for me because if you're going to put me in a box and then find somebody else to raise your $5 million or $2 million or whatever. And how do you keep it creative? How do you ha- you know keep your imagination and what's the next great thing and how am I going to keep it interesting? I think that 
traveling. That's what I miss the most about COVID. Just jumping on the plane. And I just used to jump on the plane with abandon and go anywhere. We all did. And now all of a sudden I'm petrified to get on a plane that somebody next to me is going to make me sick. And we all talked about this earlier, but every DNA is receiving this disease so differently. But back to your question, I got a lot of my ideas just being exposed to various things that I was attending, like, you know, not to brag or be name dropping, but you go to Elton John's house for a, you know, a fundraiser and he's using interior designers and, and literally designer designers to come in and do these glorious tents or tabletops and go to Buckingham Palace and you see the Queen's silver replete, tables replete with the Queen's silver and you're you're left breathless, but you're also absorbing it and you're getting these ideas. And then you think, how can I sort of do a variation on that theme, but make it more me and make it affordable? And I'm from Harlingen and I grew up with no money. So I can take a dollar and stretch it from Houston to Dallas and <laughs> make it great. really, really, you know, good. So that's one thing I think I'm pretty good at is working on a budget. And so keeping it creative, if I've already done it once, then I can't do it again. So just got to come up with another way to make it different. I dream about your old parties, but you know, 15, 18 years ago, the Do you Spanish know what? Style. A night in Seville, Lisa, I'm, I just came I, up, I think literally it. during COVID, I'm going through all the old press. I had forgotten, God, there's just been so much, you know? And there was a picture of you and Michael, and he came as Zorro. Remember? With the <laughs> yes. cape and the mask. Your husband, Michael. You that got, would be him. Yeah, my, Michael <laughs> yes. Holthouse comes in as Zorro, and you were like the Spanish Senorita Divine. And I mean, people really got it, because I would say, you know, it's not required, but I really expect, you know, to me, if you give a good party, it's your responsibility to be a good guest. And Absolutely. that means show up and make a contribution. And if you're not going to put a flower in your or a mantilla on your head, you know, <laughs> at least bring a sparkling personality and, you know, something charming to say. And I've literally taken people off my guest list that are curmudgeons. Like nobody needs them. So on to the next person that wants to come and give money. And, and uh, how about the one in Washington? We all, you were being honored by best buddies. We all show up. It was an African theme. I had some a Zulu to I do. Had, I had some wild head. Oh my god! On. It was it was all peacock feathers, <laughs> and it was like this giant thing. It was almost like a rainbow that w went about eighteen inches off your head. Right. But all of the the northeast other guests had nothing. <laughs> Nobody dressed. No, there, there was only of, the Texans. All of the Houstonians so, so I, came to, I didn't come to play. I think there were 175 of us. 175 Houstonians go, and it's in the backyard of Eunice Kennedy Shriver's house, and her son, Anthony, is one of my closest friends, and I've been on his board for 20-some-odd years. And I had already raised at that point five or six million dollars, mm -hmm. and so I'm being honored that night. And all of my friends from Houston came, and it was really and dressed. It up. was really, really, really <laughs> touching, and and uh, and they let me bring Richard flowers and the whole. I mean, it was very Houston night, even though there were six hundred people there and one hundred and fifty or one hundred sixty five were from Houston. I remember Anthony saying, "Okay, you know, on the he was on the microphone. How many of you all are from you know?" Washington or New York or the East Coast, and which was the majority of the people. And how many of Becca's friends are here from Texas? And literally, it was ear 
bursting. <laughs> it was so loud. And we, we were just, and everybody was dressed to the nines. And yeah, we made it African. And I, I remember I called it a Zulu to-do. And it was. It was so, so much fun. So much fun. Showed those Northeasterners how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more to talk about with Becca Case and Thrash on our next episode, including the time that George Clooney threw a dinner roll at my head. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. CityBook and Company is a production of CityBook Media and Milieu Media Group. This episode was produced, edited, and mixed by Luke Bronner. The music you've heard in this episode was licensed from Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork is designed by Patrick McGee. You'll find links to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in the show notes. Visit HoustonCityBook.com for the latest news and notes on the most fascinating city in America. With interest rates being as low as they are, like so many other Americans, I recently refinanced my home. I shopped around a lot of the big national mortgage companies and the big banks, and I thought I'd do myself the favor of checking out a local Houston-based company, too. I was delighted when Envoy Mortgage not only found the best deal for me, but made it all so easy. Nice Houston folks held my hand through the entire process, most of which I was able to do from my house. It was convenient because you can automatically connect your bank statements, your tax records, and your income documentation right from your phone or your tablet or your laptop. You don't have to worry all the time about how it's going as the process goes along because you get updated on each step of the process and receive video guides and helpful articles along the way. And it's pretty darn fast. Envoy's loan origination and underwriting is all done under one roof, which means your loan moves quickly. Envoy can help you whether you're buying a new home or refinancing. They even have special programs for first-time home buyers and veterans. Envoy Mortgage wants you to love your mortgage experience. Check them out at EnvoyMortgage.com and tell them Jeff from CityBook sent you. And now back to our show. <laughs>